Hello, fellow foodies. How many of you love hot sauce? We're big fans of spicy peppers in my household, and we have a big bottle of lactofermented Serrano peppers in the fridge that my kids douse over just about anything I put on the table. But what makes chili peppers so alluring to our palates? Well, it has a lot to do with pain and how our bodies react to pain stimulants like capsaicin, that hot element that comes in chilies. I knew just the person to invite on the show to discuss this topic, Dr. David Julius. David is the Morris Hernstein Chair in Molecular Biology and Medicine and Professor and Chair of Physiology at the University of California, San Francisco. He's dedicated his career to studying how pain receptors are activated, and he was awarded a $3 million breakthrough prize in life sciences last year for discovering molecules, cells, and mechanisms underlying pain sensation. David's lab is interested in understanding how signals are received and transmitted by the nervous system. And they've exploited the properties of natural products to discover a family of thermo and chemosensitive ion channels that enable sensory nerve fibers to detect hot or cold temperatures or chemical irritants. With the aid of genetic, electrophysiological, and behavioral methods, they've determined how these ion channels contribute to pain sensation and how channel activity is modulated in response to tumor growth, infection, or other forms of injury that produce inflammation and pain hypersensitivity. So thanks so much for coming on the show, David. It's great to see you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to be here. Yeah. Looking forward to this. Yeah, well, I guess the first question I have is, what drew you to capsaicin? Are you, are you a big lover of hot sauce? <laughs> I like hot sauce, you know, in moderation. I'm not one of these people who pulls habaneros out of a jar and eats them. Yeah. <laughs> neat. But, uh, you know, I like to put pepper flakes on my pizza and stuff like that. That's I great. think my interest in this really sort of grew out of a more general interest in uh, something that emerged when I was in graduate school in understanding the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And in just have, sort of having this fascination with how people have exploited natural products to understand physiology. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, when I was in graduate school, I didn't work on anything related to this. I, I, uh, I worked with two great people who use yeast genetics to understand basic cellular function. And uh, when I started thinking about what I wanted to do for my postdoc, this sort of area, you know, neuroscience, molecular, the molecular biology of the nervous system was just really a... Uh, a pathway that was emerging, you know, it was sort of the mm-hmm. birth of the uh, of, of molecular neuroscience around that time. And I was sort of looking in from the outside and thought this would be a fascinating thing to study. And, you know, what I really got interested in at first was, um, and maybe this reflects kind of the, the, uh, the uh, fact that I was a graduate student in Berkeley, you know, in the 70s. <laughs> right. I started getting interested in understanding how people use plants like psilocybin and mushrooms mm-hmm. and things like this to really alter their mind state. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, what, what do these compounds do to so profoundly change people's emotional and cognitive states? I thought that was fascinating. And then, you know, I was really like you, very much like you, I was fascinated at the sort of intersection between, um, you know, cell biology, neuroscience, pharmacology, understanding drug actions, and then anthropology. Yeah. Which, and I started reading books by, you know, by some scientists like Saul Snyder, who really had worked on uh, understanding mechanisms of opiate action and other kinds mm-hmm. of drugs. Um, morphine, of course, another natural product. 
Yeah. And then, you know, other people who worked more in uh, interacting with uh, shaman community and trying to understand the roots of discovery of these natural products. And uh, that really fascinated me, you know, looking at this intersection of how people have come to understand anthropology, anthropological uh, setting in the anthropological setting, identify natural products or the sources of natural products, then take that into the lab as you do and use chemistry to identify the, nat the, 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 the main ingredient, the functional yeah. ingredient, and then take that to really understanding mechanism in the body and, and putting that all together. So I got interested in that and really sort of more broadly in, in neuropharmacology. And then, you know, over time, this sort of blossomed into thinking about pain sensation. Yeah. Well, let's, let's back up for a minute and talk about pain. Um, you mentioned like opiates and mm -hmm. we're currently facing a big opiate crisis. Like yeah. how, how big is the problem? Uh, the problem is huge. Uh, it's huge because, you know, there's a report from the National Academy of Sciences recently that reviewed this. And, you know, it's sort of a um, confluence of a number of things. Uh, one is underserved medical communities, especially in some rural areas where people do a lot of manual labor and injure themselves and they don't have access to, uh, you know, sustained medical treatment. So the easiest way to deal with their with theirs and sometimes serious pain issues and work-related pain issues is to, you know, give them things like Oxycontin and other opiates. And then mm -hmm. this leads to real addiction problems. So, you know, th but this isn't just in rural areas. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I hear many stories of people who, you know, everybody thinks of in this one thing that, that was noted in this report is that, you know, oftentimes at least from, you know, days gone by, people think of those who are addicted to opiates as being someone hanging out on the street, you know, heroin addict. Mm -hmm. um, but many of the cases of people having opioid dependence really stem from their use of opiates to treat some serious pain issues. And then, uh, you know, they become addicted through that route. And this yeah. has affected many, many people in this country. And so it really is a, it really is an epidemic. It's a very serious problem. Uh, you know, the solution, uh, I'm sure, is at multiple levels, you know, in terms of control, better ways of administering or prescribing drugs, other alternative treatments through, you know, uh, uh, counseling and other types of, uh, of, um, of treatments. But, you know, from my perspective and from what I hope we can add to this equation, mm -hmm. it's really to identify new targets for analgesic drugs that are of the non-opioid class, things that can be used to handle persistent pain syndromes without having to tap into the opiate pathway. I mean, yeah. You know. And the opiate pathway, the the downsides of that pathway are, are basically the addictive nature of those drugs. Is that? Yeah. I mean, you know, from a purely scientific level, the, the you know, morphine is a fantastic analgesic, at least <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, acutely. Yeah. And the opiate pathway is still a, a very powerful and fascinating pathway in the body that, you know, we normally harness to control uh, pain. Um, the problem is that uh, that opiate drugs that people take, yes, certainly addiction is a big problem. Um, but there's also, you know, tolerance. So you need higher and higher doses to achieve the same analgesic uh, mm -hmm. potency. And then this leads to all these other, you know, side effects like constipation, like respiratory depression, which is what kills you when you uh, overdose on opiate drugs. Uh, so it's a whole spectrum of things that include both acute and long-term 
long-term problem. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's really a fascinating biological problem. Why do we become tolerant? Why do we become addicted? I mean, these are, these are long-term, really fascinating goals to understand. Uh, but in the short term, uh, there's just, you know, too many, uh, side effects and comorbidities associated with opiate drugs to think that we can use them as a sole source of pain control. Yeah. Well, we, we experience pain every day, like even through our, our sensory experiences in the, in the mouth. Like, can you tell us a bit more about how does, how does pain reception in the mouth impact our interactions with foods and I'm thinking of chilies and maybe even black pepper. I don't know if those act on the same sensors. Yeah, they do. Um, but before I say that, I just want to say one thing, which is, you know, pain is not, is not a bad thing. You Uh know, it's a good thing. We need this to protect ourselves and people who have rare genetic disorders or other kinds of syndromes like diabetes and other things, uh, that diminish the ability of the pain pathway to work normally are at great risk for injury because the pain pathway is there to protect you and tell you when you have or when you're about to injure yourself and then to mm-hmm. initiate the appropriate you know, protective reflexes sounds- like taking your hand away from a hot stove. And mm. so if you don't have those reflexes, you're in trouble. Um, but the goal is really to manage pain when it becomes um, you know, persistent and debilitating, when it's no longer useful as a warning system but yeah. is instead really sort of, you know, crippling our lifestyle and keeping us from doing what we normally need to do anyway. Oh, that's a, that's a great point though. Yeah. I, I mean, I imagine if you're in the kitchen and you're chopping vegetables, you could really, if you didn't have pain, you could just slice right through your finger. Yeah. Children is these rare genetic disorders where there is, you know, people are born without the ability to, to sense pain. And you really have to watch those kids very carefully because they will do things like put pencils through their fingers or hands or go in a sandbox and get sand in their eyes and then get corneal abrasion because they don't know that they're Mm. listening tissue damage, basically. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, you can see in those just those examples how important it is to have a normally functioning pain pathway. Yeah. But then, you know, with injury like back injury or sciatica or migraine, whatever the, the term is that the pain system becomes maladaptive, mm-hmm. which means that it becomes heightened and maybe gets activated when it shouldn't be. And then we're not happy campers. Um, yeah. So in terms of, uh, of the mouth, well, of course we need pain fibers in our mouth as well, because you need to know when you've taken something into your mouth, that's too hot or maybe too cold mm-hmm. or sharp. And so it protects your oral cavity and, you know, your nasal passages and all these kind of things. So mucous membranes and visceral organs, what we call enteroception is really, they're really, uh, you know, very highly innervated. Your eyes Mm -hmm. uh, are, uh, cornea is is one of the most highly innervated areas of your body. Um, You know, even your bladder, if you looked at a, at a, at a histological section of a bladder with all that, and you could see all the nerve fibers in it. It just looks like a spider's web. Oh, uh, really? You know, we have nerve fibers basically in almost every tissue in our body, but of course the skin, our ectopic surface and, and our things that are exposed to the environment are very heavily innervated. Uh, and so we need that to protect ourselves. But, um, you know, some of the things we eat <laughs> are, uh, activate those pain fibers. So everybody thinks that a lot of people think that um, some of these spices that we interact with are taste, you know, eliciting a taste response. And I'm sure there are some things in chili peppers that are also activating taste cells. But the main pungent sensation that we get 
from the main pungent ingredient, with this, which is capsaicin, mm-hmm. at least in, in capsicum peppers, it's a pain response. It's not a taste response. Mm-hmm. And it's activating these nerve fibers to basically, you know, elicit a, a, a sensation that we describe as hot. You know, we also sort of feel other things, but hot and burning, tingling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, and the same thing's true of some of these other, uh, molecules that we've worked on these other channels that you've alluded to in your introduction that amazingly, uh, you know, through a sort of beautiful convergence of evolution are also targeted by pungent, other sorts of pungent agents for plants. So that includes wasabi. I was just about to ask, is like, yeah. is this where the mustards come into play? That mustard family. Yeah. yeah. The mustard allium and, and, uh, mm-hmm. mustard family of plants. Uh, you know, onions, garlic, mm-hmm. shallots, Brussels sprouts, they produce a different series of compounds, not capsicum-like, but uh, that, um, you know, these so-called thiosulfonates and, uh, mm-hmm. and isothiocyanates that activate another receptor that's related to the one that's activated by, by capsicum. And that they, they also induce, a, a, you know, a, a certain pungency that we know and love. <laughs> And then the, the third one that we've worked on, of course, is something that maybe some people don't consider as pungent, but still um, Eccles and others years ago uh, classified these as irritants and that are cooling agents like menthol and eucalyptol. Oh, yeah. In high concentrations, you know, they are irritating, although in lower concentrations, we like them for their cooling effects. And those activate another receptor that's, again, related to the wasabi and the capsaicin receptor in terms of its atomic structure. Uh, and that we call the menthol or cold receptor because it's also activated by cold. And you'll find nerve fibers that express all of those receptors in our mouth, in our eyes, in our skin, et cetera. Mm. So I always always tell people, you know, chili peppers, I always say, especially when I'm giving a seminar, you know, we think of them as being a taste sensation. But if you've ever chopped a chili pepper and stuck your fingers in your eye, you know that that's not taste. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, it's pain. It's pain. <laughs> well, just going back to what you said earlier about the anthropology of plants, it, it really strikes me as you're listing these chili peppers, black pepper, your mustards, your wasabi, you know, those, those, uh, the alliums, these are, well, they're all like many of my favorite foods, <laughs> yeah, but also global exploration and mm-hmm. trade networks were set up to to capture and move you know black pepper and chili pepper across yeah. the globe because people desired them so much That's and right. it's yeah. it's interesting yeah yeah absolutely and you know chili peppers are indigenous to south and central america i mean we tend to think about them as being uh you know first discovered some people think that anyway in and, and i probably thought that before i you know work in this area in places like, you know, South Central Asia and Korea and China, you know, in uh, in certain regions of China um, where you know people use very spicy food, uh, and um, but they they're really, you know, indigenous to the Americas, and then taken to other parts of the world by people like Christopher Columbus and other explorers who came and harvested these plants. So you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, these are spices, just like you know the great spice roots. And they were prized for their um, sensorial, you know, yeah. and spread all, you know, and, and, you know, some spices in particular, like uh, capsaicin, I think was used, uh, you know, probably in the same way to some degree, like salt has been used not only uh, to improve the palate 
availability of food, but also especially in times when you couldn't refrigerate stuff. And so yeah. you had a mass really, you know, rotting food with other kinds of uh, experiences. And so, um, you know, you could put spicy food on there and ignore the fact that the meat was rotting. And um, there is some preservative effect of some of these agents because they do have some antibacterial properties. Um, and, and, you know, the other reason is, you know, I used to wonder why would people eat really spicy hot foods in hot climates? You know, you think, God, it's hot enough. What do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> but when you eat a chili pepper, um, you know, that elicits these um, hypothermic effects. So you start to sweat and then you uh, vasodilate, and it decreases your core body temperature. So eating um, hot, spicy food in a warm climate is a way of shedding core, you know, shedding body heat and lowering your core body temperature. Well, that's fascinating. I had no idea about that. Yeah, wow. so that's another reason people like chili peppers in places <laughs> like Mexico or Central Asia, places like that. Yeah. So what are some of the biggest insights or aha moments you've had from your work you've I mean you've got such a large body of work in this space but I'm like were there were there any early discoveries that just really hit you as this is really fascinating well, yeah there have been a few I guess you know those eureka moments um you know certainly clo cloning the, the members of these family you know cloning the these receptors especially the capsaicin receptor initially which is work done by Mike Caterina, when he was a fellow in my lab, he's now on the faculty at Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, he cloned what we call, what at the time we call VR1, now called TRIP-V1, which is the capsaicin mm -hmm. receptor. And, you know, that was a great thing. Well, so why was that so exciting to us? Well, you know, people have been looking for this receptor for many, many years. And I should, I should say that in the history of this uh, little field, um, you know, the initial work really sort of linking capsaicin to cell biology was done in Hungary by mm. uh, Jansko Gabor and his colleagues. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, paprika is a pretty big industry in Hungary. So working with yeah. that right, and understanding its properties is important. And he and his colleagues showed that capsaicin was, a, was a, an excitatory agent for a subset of sensory neurons, which he hypothesized uh, were what we call the nociceptors. So there's a subset of sensory nerve fibers that are called nociceptors, and those are the cells that are dedicated to pain sensation. Because not all our sensory nerve fibers in the somatosensory system are dedicated to pain. Some are for light touch and proprioception, but there's a subset maybe, depending upon the animal you look at, you know, a third to a half that are dedicated to pain sensation. Mm -hmm. And so he floated the idea that capsaicin was a way to identify the subset of cells that were involved in pain sensation. And yet, you know, for many years, it was sort of this little mythical site. You know, is there really a defined site at which capsaicin acts? And really, even up to the time when we cloned it, there were papers coming out that said, no, there's no specific molecular site. Capsaicin just does some funky things to the membrane of the cell, which mm -hmm. never really made, quite made sense, because otherwise, how do you get selectivity, you know? Yeah, and yeah. So we kept looking and many, you know, a number of labs had, had been looking because this was really like the holy grail of molecular, of molecular pain research at the time. You mm -hmm. know, it was like, wow, how does this work? And the idea was, you know, it was really analogous to work of people like using Kosterlitz or Snyder in identifying the first opiates and opiate receptors. Mm -hmm. You know, you knew that if you could figure out how morphine worked, you would open up a window into understanding 
normal physiological mechanisms that control pain sensation. Yeah. And for cats, it was, you know, very much the same kind of feeling. And yet it was this elusive, you know, target. And so when we when we showed that, in fact, there is a molecule that we could call the capsaicin receptor and that it had the properties that, you know, had been associated with how capsaicin works, that was a pretty exciting moment, I'd say. Yeah, for and, sure. And then, you know, also by analogy to the to morphine, it's okay, so now you have a now you have a receptor for a natural product. But why do we have this thing in our body? You know, we didn't evolve these molecules so that we can appreciate all these natural products. As much as we love natural products, that's not you know <laughs> yeah. why it's sort of more an accident of convergent evolution. And so, you know, what are these receptors doing in our body? And then you know, figuring out that this receptor is activated by heat was a very exciting thing because it sort of put the pharmacology together with the physiology. So those were cool moments. Uh, the other one I'd say was identifying the menthol receptor as a cold receptor because that sort of rounded out the picture and gave mm-hmm. us more of a kind of a unified, um, you know, model for how we sense changes in ambient temperature. So that was kind wow. of cool. Uh, no pun intended. And, you know, another thing, <laughs> yeah. I'll go through all of them, but another one that I think was really a lot of fun was work that we've been doing over the last, you know, seven or eight years um, with my friend and colleague at UCSF, Yifan Chang, who's a, uh, you know, world expert in using these, um, in using this technique of electron cryomicroscopy or cryo-EM mm-hmm. to look at structures of molecules. And um, and we got together with Yifan, a fellow in my lab named Erhu Kao, who's now professor in uh, University of Utah, and Malfu Liao, who is in EFOS lab, who's now has his own lab at Harvard. We got together as sort of this little group and decided, well, maybe we could use this technique to see what the structure of some of these channels might look like. Because, um, so these channels, these receptors for wasabi, for capsaicin, for menthol, they belong to this family of ion channels called TRIP, TRP ion channels, mm-hmm. which were initially discovered in Drosophila in phototransduction system. Uh, but their role in mammals is, uh, you know, until that time was really sort of not very well understood. And, um, and so identifying natural products that activate these receptors, these channels, was really an exciting thing for that field, you know, outside the pain area, because it finally provided some pharmacological tools to ask how these channels work and what they do in our body. Yeah. And so these sort of spice-activated channels, if you want to call them that, have now served as models, initial models for understanding what these channels look like. And it turns out trip channels are, there are many different types in our body, many subtypes. They're one of the most um, uh, uh, highly represented ion channel families in vertebrate genomes and in our own bodies, you know, in in human, in mammalian physiology. And, um, and they're, they're really sort of an important, you know, most drugs that people take hit, membrane proteins, including ion channels. So we want to know more about them. And, you know, one of, and, and we were a little embarrassed in this field because chip channels were, you know, some of the most plentiful in the body, yet compared to other membrane ion channels, you know, we were always sitting there wondering, when are we ever going to get a structure for one of these things? And we were really behind the eight ball on that. And it just turns out that these proteins, you know, they're hard to work with. And using methods like X-ray crystallography just didn't do the job. So, mm. uh, so we decided to sort of take a, a different approach, and that turned out to be a really exciting moment for two reasons: that because we were able to get the structure 
of capsaicin receptor with capsaicin bound in its pocket. In it. Wow. Side. And then there's another aspect that I'll talk about in a minute that also relates to natural products. And, um, and the exciting thing about that was that, you know, that was really uh, interesting for people in the trip channel field and in the pain field. But um, it was really of interest even outside that area because this was the first time that anyone had used this technique of cryo-EM to get the atomic structure of a membrane protein without crystals, which, you know, at least for the cognoscente, that's a bit, that was a big deal. And for the, for, for the generalists in the audience, that was a big deal because membrane proteins are very hard to work with and to get atomic structures to see what they look like in three dimensions. And, and this technique now allows people to do that sort of much more easily and much, at a much faster pace. Mm-hmm. And so the capsaicin receptor was kind of like the founding example of using that technique yeah. on these types of molecules. And so that was kind of a ripple that went outside of our field to a much more general field of protein structural biology. And that was really, that was really exciting. And, you know, you always wonder, what are we going to learn when we actually see what the thing looks like in three dimensions? Because we kind of know what it does and we know drugs that, but you know, that expression, seeing is believing. When you see the atomic structure, it's, it not only becomes informative over time, but it's just a beautiful thing to see. Oh, and it sort yeah. of puts it together. And the other thing that that told us is, so on another natural product route, you know, plants make things that um, activate our pain pathway. Presumably, we don't really know, but presumably, in some cases, that happens to protect the plant from predation. Right, so if a mm-hmm. squirrel or deer starts eating a chili pepper, you know, I don't like that too much, and moves on to some other more edible thing. Because unlike humans, they haven't, you know, they haven't developed the uh, ability to do things to, that hurt themselves. <laughs> we yeah. smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol, and we eat, we eat chili peppers. But, <laughs> but um, so, uh, but there's other creatures on the planet, other beings, that, you know, uh, life forms that have to defend themselves, and so. We've tapped into those as natural products, as many neuroscientists have, um, you know, namely toxins from things like spiders and scorpions and et cetera. And uh, and some years ago, we identified a a toxin from a tarantula that also activates the chili pepper receptor. And and this is really kind of a fascinating thing because it's kind of, it really is a beautiful example of convergent evolution, right? You have a a spider and a plant that both make natural products that attack the same molecular target, the capsaicin receptor, mm-hmm. but they do so, do so through completely different chemistries, right? Capsaicin is oh. a small vanilloid compound. The spider toxins are uh, a much larger peptide, you know, small mm-hmm. protein. And, um, and we found one that has a very high affinity for the capsaicin receptor and, and, and our initial structures showed not only capsaicin bound in its pocket, but it also showed the chili pepper, uh, the, uh, the the spider toxin uh, draped across the top of the ion channel where the toxin sits to regulate its activity. Wow. that's It's amazing how nature can give us so many important clues to understanding the fundamental processes of pain and to really advance in the field. I mean, if we don't have this understanding, it's difficult to advance and, and develop new drugs without understanding how these channels work, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the reason that these channels, so there's like 30 members of this trip channel family and, and the ones that really initially, at least that were, you know, that could be studied readily were these pain 
uh, related channels. Why? Because we were a- we and others were able to find natural products that we could use as pharmacological probes, as drug probes to understand what mm-hmm. they do in the body, how they work as sort of molecular machines. So having drugs, whether they be man-made or natural products, is really essential to probing these mechanisms and, you know, cracking these puzzles. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, natural products are really a, look, you know, we can tinker in the lab and make compounds, not we, but, you know, chemists. Um, but nature's had, you know, millions of years of evolution to come up with these fits. And uh, that, you know, a fit between a, a, a molecule, uh, between a, a natural product ligand and its target. And so, you know, why not take advantage of that? It's yeah. really, you know, an, an amazing thing. And, um, and you know, the, the place to look for that is either random screening, as you, I mean, you know this better than I do, or through following, you know, human behavior and trying to, you know, zero in on 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 sources of interesting molecules based on folk medicine and, you know, these kind of things. So, look, some of those hits are, are going to be goofy and they're not going to lead anywhere and there'll be more, uh, you know, mysticism than anything else. But, you know, there's enough examples to know that there are some great hits out there that people really have studied and understood over hundreds yeah. of thousands of years. And, you know, if you look in the pain field, you know, the two main types of analgesics that we take today namely opiates and, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like aspirin plants. and ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah, they have their roots in plants and, and, and folk medicine, right? Uh, opium, yeah. of course, for treating pain, and then salicylate or willow bark for treating pain, which is really the root of discovery of aspirin and all those so-called NSAIDs like ibuprofen uh, yeah. and, you know, those, those kinds of things, so... So it's yeah. you know at least if you just look at the pain field as an example, the uh, the the yield from understanding natural product chemistry has been huge. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm thinking even like our advances. You mentioned morphine earlier with recovery from surgery, but mm-hmm. also you know the 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 paralytic agents that we've gotten from from nature as well, and numbing agents. If you go to the dentist, you think about the cocaine, you know, yeah. compounds, right. the, the cane derivatives, yeah. and um, curare poison. Yeah. You know, that was originally researched and helped to relax muscles during surgery, so mm-hmm. you could have a cleaner cut. There's, there's, it's just so it's fascinating, and I think it's an exciting space to be in, and. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing all the cool things I know are going to come out of your lab in the future as you, as you probe these, um, these channels more and more. Yeah, we're, you know, we're still using structural methods and, you know, students who come to my lab in particular, you know, there's, 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 they're always fascinated by the natural product world or some, Mm -hmm. you know, not all, but. And, and st- you know, there's always something new out there to find. So, as you know, we keep screening with collaborators like Glenn King in Australia and others, you know, and, uh, um, uh, and Elder Sanchez at the Natural Toxin Research Center in Texas. You know, we're always um, asking them for new venoms that they might have and things like that, that would be sources to screen through. And mm-hmm. then, you know, we do the work of finding the active component in there. But... Um, you know, just when you think you've kind of saturated things and, you know, well, why should I look for another toxin for this target? We already have some, you know, you'll come up with one that acts through a completely different mechanism, different. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you about a new regulatory site on these channels. 
that's not only fascinating and probably tells you something about endogenous pain pathways, but is yet another, you know, potentially key locus to modulate with drugs for therapeutics. So, um, you know, I think together with rational drug design and screening, small molecule screening, you know, in a lab, I think all these things really help to um, help us better understand these molecules and will add to the body of knowledge that will help us come up with drugs because, you know, just getting a blocker for these channels is sometimes not enough. There are antagonists for the TRIP-P1 channel for the capsaicin mm -hmm. receptor. Um, they have some on-target side effects that have been a little problematic. Like, as I, as I told you, when you take capsaicin, you uh, experience hypo, a little mm -hmm. hypothermia, so your body temperature drops. That's why people like to eat them in hot climates. But if you take an antagonist, your core body temperature may go up a little bit. So people report feeling feverish. Feverish. Oh, interesting. That, yeah. If you block the receptor, then, mm -hmm. um, you know, your your ability to discriminate something hot is impaired a bit. And so mm -hmm. drug companies worry about people drinking something hot and burning themselves. Yeah. So what's the answer to that? Well, maybe it's to find drugs that hit other pockets on the channel that don't shut it down completely but that interfere with the ability of inflammatory agents to change the activity of the channel, which is really what we think drives pain hypersensitivity through that receptor. So, you know, there's a lot of sites, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, as they say, and there's a lot of sites <laughs> on these channels. And hopefully, uh, maybe I shouldn't use that term these days, but hopefully, um, there, I have a cat. Well. So there's, uh, there's, you know, different ways to tweak these molecules. And as you know better than I, drug design and development is a, a long-term process that just requires, you know, at some point, a lot of trial and error and trying different, yeah. different compounds that hit different sites, even on the same molecule. Well, that's great. Well, this has been fascinating insight from the palate to the pharmacy of, <laughs> of the role of, of, you know, things that we can sense and how it can give us insight into, into more global pain modulation. It's great. Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. It's great to have yeah, you. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. We're recording remotely on Skype during COVID-19. If you'd like to listen to this and other shows, check out our website at foodiepharmacology.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts and any other major podcast streaming service. You can also catch video versions of the show at my YouTube channel, Teach Ethnobotany on YouTube. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.